Welcome to the Scalar Learning Podcast, the ultimate education show on the forefront of the burgeoning edtech revolution. Join us each week as we interview the most cutting-edge edtech companies, content creators, and curriculum developers across the planet. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Scalar Learning Podcast. I am your host, Huzaifa, as always. Now, this podcast is on the forefront of the education revolution, the edtech revolution, which I'm very proud of. And I love this. I love this subject matter. And I'm always trying to get interesting guests from the edtech world, from the education world. And I feel like we've had some amazing people on lately. But I have to say, Today is a really, really, really special interview. The gentleman that is on the show today is named Dr. John Medina. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about him if you don't know who he is. John Medina, Dr. John Medina is a developmental molecular biologist, has a lifelong fascination with how the mind reacts to and organizes information. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Brain Rules, 12 Principles for Surviving and Thriving at Work, Home, and School, which I have to recommend. You guys got to check this book out. Uh, a lot of you have probably heard of it or read it. Uh, okay, so it's a provocative book that takes on the way our schools and work environments are designed. Medina's book on brain development is a must-read for parents and early childhood educators. But he doesn't just have that. He also has Brain Rules for Baby, How to Raise a Smart and Happy Child from Zero to Five. And his latest book is called Brain Rules for Aging Well, 10 Principles for Staying Vital, Happy, and Sharp. And I know in Brain Rules, the original which we're going to talk about today, there's a lot of stuff that relates to how exercise and so on can essentially help maintain a lot of cognitive functions later in life and even really just lead to uh, greater longevity, which is super cool. But but the reason why this is so cool is because we have one of the greatest uh, minds and researchers in this field that we all care about. We all care about the well-being of ourselves, but more importantly, the well-being of our children and students. So without further ado, John, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Josefa, for having me on. Thank you so much for agreeing to come on. Now, let's first start just a little bit of your background. How did you get into the into this field? I mean, what what drew you in? Yeah, well, it's uh, um, I think it's because of children. <laughs> They're now all grown and out of the house. But uh, uh, um, my research interests have always been the genetics of psychiatric disorders. So I've been interested for the longest time in uh, I'm a developmental molecular biologist which means I've been interested in how the brain develops at the level of cell and gene. And particularly for psychiatric disorders, I've been very interested in how the brain develops in the womb. And then what happens years later uh, when a behavior comes out and you uh, uh, get a psychopathology of some kind. So I have to be fairly versant in three dialects of brain science. I have to be a a fairly uh, astute behaviorist, and I have to know the cells pretty well, and my home turf, of course, are the molecules. And it was on the basis of that understanding, when I had kids, Huzefa, and I began to see in real terms exactly what a brain was developing in the, in the course of a family life and eventually a classroom life, that any of the stuff I'd been doing in the laboratory, some of it finally began to make sense. And then I began to look at some gaps, and I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, this kid is learning at X, Y, and Z rate and doing A, B, and C, and we have no idea how he does that. I have two sons. 
I have no idea how, how my sons did that. And I thought, you know, there is some reason to go after for cognitive neuroscientists, which is what I actually really am, uh, uh, to go uh, after the world of education and see can uh, see what we can discover. So it, the, the, the short answer to the question is it was uh, children. I also have a longer answer, though, uh, not that that wasn't long enough, and it has to do with a reaction to mythologies. I was, I was on an airplane, and I was busy reading this book, or reading this magazine on the airplane back in the days when they had magazines, and uh, I, I was reading Modern Brain Science, can teach us how we should, uh, can tell us about our voting preferences, can teach us how we should teach kids and whatnot. And they started citing these literatures that made no sense. Some of them were mythologies uh, that were anchored in the peer review. And I remember who they I threw the magazine across the aisle of the, of the airplane. That was in the days when there weren't a lot of other people on the airplane at all. It was a, it was a night flight. Because I thought to myself, you know, there's a lot of good work that's done out there, but it's not related at all to this mythology. And I got home, and I told my wife about it, and she said, well, John, you can sit on your molecular high horse and just throw stones uh, all you like, or you could write a little bit about what we do know and what kinds of things could be available were we to do serious experiments whereby uh, uh, really good educators and really good brain scientists put their ha- brain scientists put their hands together and came up with some stuff? So that's where brain rules started. There are twelve things I think that are well established in the research literature that would make terrific research questions for educators and brain scientists uh, to do together. And so that was that's how I got started. So there's both a short answer and a long answer. And now I want to talk a little bit about the notion that when you a lot of times there can be literature, I think, as you call it, mythology in the sense of what should parents do, what should teachers do, schools do. And I think that's a major problem is that a lot of things are being promulgated in a sense where I don't know. I, a lot of times I don't know the real foundation of of what people are sure. pushing. But the differences with your work, I think, is that it's really deeply couched in, in good research. And I think that's so important for educators, parents, whatever alike, to look for for the right type of information from the right sources, and, and which is why it's so cool to have you on today. I think hopefully redirect uh, people towards your work and – and others like you. So I want to I want to dive in a little bit to brain rules. Now, there are 12 uh-huh. brain rules and the first one I wanted to touch on kind of going in order of the book is of course exercise and okay. and this is like this is uh, huge to me and I know it's very very important to the school that I teach at in terms of having uh-huh. that physical activity and I remember, there's even a part in that section which talks about the idea of two recesses a day. Can you tell us a little bit about oh, yeah. why exercise or why physical activity is so important to cognitive abilities? Sure. Well, we can start with the evolutionary performance envelope of the human brain because it immediately touches on the concept and some of the research literature on exercise and cognition. You know, I just was busy being skeptical about applying any of the stuff we do in the lab to the real world, and I still really am. But we're not clueless about how the brain works. I don't want to give your audience the impression that, you know, we know nothing. The, uh, uh, um, for example, we know something about its evolutionary performance envelope. These are the conditions under which the human brain learns the best. The human brain appears to have been designed to solve problems related to surviving in an outdoor setting in unstable meteorological conditions and to do so in near constant motion. 
And it's that last sentence fragment, in constant motion, that forms the heart of the exercise chapter and the answer to your question. Um, we're walking around the, the Serengeti and the Ngorongoro Crater in East Africa for millions of years. Eight to ten million years uh, we diverged away from chimpanzees and, and got our big, fat, uh, uh, problem-solving brain under conditions of near-constant exercise. We think a minimum was it was 20 kilometers a day, and a lot of it was spent scrambling up and down the uh, the sides of mountains or the sides of the, of the crater in the Rift Valley, uh, trekking through uh, uh, flatlands in the savannah. I mean, this thing was built to move. And so if you have, like, 20 kids in a classroom and you have sit down for eight hours a day, you know, you could almost make the prediction that that would be suboptimal. And the metaphor I sometimes use is that, you know, it's a lot like having uh, Air Force brat. so I grew up with uh, military aircraft. So let's take a, a like a, a, an F-16. And all the F-16 fighters did was taxi around the uh, airport the entire day or the flight line and never fly. Now, F-16s can taxi. That's not what they were built for. So from that idea that we probably are, 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 uh, our evolutionary history informs the uh, fact of motion and movement, you could predict several things, that the brain might actually work better if it was moving than if it wasn't. And man, does that bear out. There's a behavioral story with this, there is a, a cellular story with this, and there's a molecular story, and they all say the same thing. Get up and move. From the behavioral side, you can get changes in executive function. Executive function, as you may know, is a, a kind of a dual uh, object, a dual cognitive gadget in the brain. Uh, it is involved in cognitive control, so your ability to attend to certain stimuli uh, or not, or, or disengage them. That's part of it. It's also involved in impulse control. Uh, executive function scores actually predict grade point averages better than any other uh, uh, cognitive gadget that exists. And executive function is improved if you're aerobically exercising. Uh, uh, spatial distribution improves, memory improves, and in fact, it's interesting, we actually know that it's aerobic exercise that does it. There's great reasons to do strengthening, but they don't change brain power. So the behavioral side is executive function. The cellular side, you're actually improving electrical, reciprocating electrical communications between two very large, broad swaths of neurocircuitry. One is involved in the what we call the lizard brain. Uh, uh, it's where our, a lot of our passions are, and it's where a lot of the housekeeping functions that exist in the, in the brain are. And the prefrontal cortex, which is near your forehead, it has the ability to control the lizard brain, and exercise actually improves the connections between those two very important areas of the brain. And then finally, even at the molecular level, there's a wonderful story developing. We know that aerobic exercise will improve uh, a protein called BDNF, brain-derived neuro, uh, neurotrophic factor. It will improve. By that, I mean increase the level of, uh, of BDNF in very specific regions of the brain, specifically the hippocampus, which is deeply involved in memory formation and types of learning. So robust is this literature, uh, let's say if I, you could make a strong argument that all schools across the nation should have a school uniform, and that school uniform should be gym clothes, and you would have guided aerobic workouts in the morning, and you would have guided aerobic workouts in the afternoon, hence the comment about recess. The data about movement 
mission in every population that has ever been tested, and it's been tested in toddlers, it's been tested in teenagers, and it's been tested in old farts like me. All of all exercise improves everything. So let, let's unpack this because there's so much that, that I want to ask about. First of all, the so that was really interesting. The last bit that you said in terms of you said every school. Uh, which I love. I wear gym clothes all the time, so that would be amazing for me. But the but it, the, you want a workout in the morning and you want a workout in yep. the afternoon. Why in those two specific times? Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Uh, it, what, what I'm looking for is the ability to have 150 minutes of aerobic activity in a seven-day period. And so uh, if you had two periods like that, that would, uh, that would get those numbers. But I have a more specific reason for uh, uh, aiming it at particular uh, uh, time of the day, or better to say it's a particular time of placement within a, uh, 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 a school. Let me unpack that. The research literature shows that if you do an aerobic workout and you have this endorphin and it's a dopaminergic rush and there's a lot of things, mostly it's endorphins, uh, um, your brain is just poised, it's optimized to go to learn something for about two hours. After about two hours, the curve begins to decline, and by eight hours, the, the, the big spike has gone away. Uh, researchers, uh, I think it was in Germany, uh, uh, asking questions, about, at Tübingen actually, uh, asked the question, if we, you know, given that the, the learning seems to be optimized directly after exercise, what if we exercised a bunch of people, but instead of having them take a shower, stick them in a classroom and teach them something and then measure the learning. In this particular case, it was going to be Mandarin vocabulary acquisition and Mandarin grammar acquisition for a bunch of uh, design engineers from uh, Siemens Engineering Company. Some of them were taught. They had a, an aerobic workout, and some were taught directly after. They couldn't take a shower. Which they, in fact, they had to. Um, uh, they just sponged off and immediately had the Mandarin class. As opposed to the controls, which also had an aerobic workout, but took their Mandarin class at night, eight hours after the exercise had occurred, when the uh, when the curve was essentially flatlined, and they showed that the exercising group had a twenty percent increase in Mandarin acquisition, both vocabulary and grammatical uh, uh, acquisition, over the controls, which tells us something very powerful. It's not just the presence of exercise. It's the presence of exercise in a particular time of the day, hence my comment about morning and afternoon. I, uh, uh, the reason why I chose two times, is I, uh, two, uh, I'm going after two sets of academic uh, uh, subjects. We, we fail miserably. When the PISA test comes out and the TIMS test comes out, these are international uh, tests that are given to a variety of age groups in a lot of different developing countries and developed countries. We score really badly in math and science particularly. And so for two times a day, I have a guided aerobic workout and immediately in the morning and immediately have the math class. Just let them towel off. They'll do what essentially recreate the Tribigan experiment. Have them towel off and immediately have them have the math class right after the exercise. And then, because we also suck at science, then in the afternoon, do the thing all over again and now have an aerobic workout and then go and do the science. Go to the weak spots in our curriculum and allow aerobic exercise to essentially act like the most wonderful drug cognitive enhancer you can take. There's no pharmaceutical in sight. It's simply getting out there and doing an aerobic workout. 
the least that would happen is that you would change type 2 diabetes and the obesity rates in the United States. The best that could happen is that you'd probably increase the TIMS and the PISA scores. The most uh, important uh, uh, recommendation I can make is that that should be a research project because we actually don't know if what I just said would work and allow do a randomized blinded trials whereby the independent variable is not only the exercise but the placement of the exercise uh, before or after a given subject. Now, that's fascinating because that's something that I teach at, at the school where I work. I teach math right in the morning, first class of the day at 8 a.m., and that is something that I could uh-huh. actually and probably will going forward. I want to try that out. That's amazing. Now, quick follow-up, but I, sure. I, I think I, ha- I know the answer intuitively, but I'd love to get your thoughts. How much of a difference does it make whether the physical activity is fun for the kids, something they choose versus something I choose that is not necessarily that fun? <laughs> well, the more fun you can make it, the more the higher your compliance rate is going to be. That's for sure. But fun has cannot be cannot take the place of rigor. You have to have both. But there's ways to do both. I uh, I have seen uh, uh, in some places where obstacle courses were put together, and the kids had to run through the obstacle course. Obstacle course. The idea here is to create an uh, an aerobic spike that would allow everybody to participate. Uh, for those uh, kids that can't do obstacle course-like things, then a treadmill would probably be appropriate. But you can put like a television on a treadmill or a lecture or something that would engage them visually while it is that they're also uh, exercising their gross motor movement. I would argue, to say, that that's a research question. We don't know the answer to the compliance simply because this kind of model has never been done that I'm aware and and what about what are your thoughts on stand up desks maybe it's of course not going to have the same effect in terms of an aerobic workout but do you have thoughts it's something right. that we've integrated into the classroom do you have thoughts on that I do it's uh, stand up uh, desks are better than not having a stand up desk that's for sure when blood is pooling to your buttocks and to your ankles uh, that's a net negative <laughs> for hours of a day. And because you're standing, you're now having to do some shifting, so there's going to be some isometric uh, components to that experience. It would be better to have them standing than not. I actually think there's a small, there was one small study that was done, I forget where, who did it. Um, so I, I'll, just, I'll just state it as an anecdote, it's simply because I haven't seen it replicated, so it'd be an anecdote anyway, till it were. The, uh, um, whereby the best seem to be where you could have have them standing and then have them sit for a period of time and then have them stand up again. It is the, the delta between those two, the being able to get up and get down. If you think about it for a second, that's exactly what you're doing in the Ngorongo crater and the savannah, right? You're not just standing the whole time and you're not just seated the whole time. You have this extraordinary evolutionary mixture of experiences uh, from a, a motor perspective. That may ultimately be the best. So, yeah, I'm totally in favor of standing desks. And I think I'm also in favor of taking a break from those desks and sitting down in a, uh, in, in a more sedentary position. So now speaking of breaks, there's another section of the book where in, I think it's in section four. You talk about attention. And let's talk about yeah. this notion of the, the brain needs a break and the idea that you throw out for 10-minute lectures or, or, or quarter-hour lectures along those lines. Tell us about that and why you, you, you have that notion of shorter lectures and the whole idea of tuning out. Sure. This was done primarily with college students. I don't know that this has ever been tested in an elementary school uh, uh, situation, so I can only talk about what the data say. But in the book, I talk specifically about uh, 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 Bill McKeechee's work at the University of Michigan uh, at Ann Arbor. He's, he's dead now. 
the, uh, he created something that's called the 10-minute rule. And people have been uh, um, uh, studying it and looking at it, and a, a very interesting confirmation of the data occurred very recently and published in the journal Nature, of all places, very much uh, 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 supporting the 10-minute rule. Here's the 10-minute rule. At 9 minutes and 59 seconds, as a professor, you need to be scared out of your mind because you're about ready to be a student. Okay? So 9 minutes and 59 seconds into the lecture, their attention span is beginning to wane. Uh, the more recent data that was published in Nader puts it at, uh, at about, uh, you've got to about 11 minutes and 42 seconds before things get really, start to go off the rails. At 13 minutes, it's all over if you don't do something. So in the book, I talk a little bit about the 10-minute rule as a way to apply some of the attentional state, particularly what we call the attentional spotlight. That is the cognitive gadget that a student is using when the, when the professor is a sage on the stage professor and is busy uh, doing some lecture. If you don't do something at 9 minutes and 59 seconds, you're going to lose your audience. Because you can go with it. You can have a standard 50-minute lecture. I, I teach uh, bioengineering graduate students all the time and occasionally undergraduate populations. Uh, um, and I can keep them going for a couple of hours. But you have to do something specific at 9 minutes and 15 seconds or you will lose your audience. And so that's called the 10-minute rule. So now I would imagine if we, if we apply something along the lines of a break in te- uh, after the 10 minutes in an elementary setting yeah. for math in particular, which is what I teach, that, hey, we do my lecture and then we break to do some problems where you work on problems individually, then maybe we come back, right? So it, it, it could be a way to segment the class and integrate, uh, I think as most math teachers do, integrate some sort of uh, individualized practice or group practice and so on and so forth. Is that what, how you see sure. it? Now, again, it's not, I know that's not, you're not in elementary school, but is that how you see it un- right. unfolding? Well, breaks can happen lots of different ways, and some research that has been uh, studied, I don't know how young the population is for some of these studies. I've seen uh, high school and junior high, but I can't go to elementary, so I won't be able to answer the question directly. Uh, but what has been shown, particularly in high schools, is that if, if you give a, a break, have the break be where you literally turn to your neighbor and just repeat what you think you heard. So uh, you're getting a repetition cycle, and they get a chance to talk to you about it also. So for a minute or two, you just got, you discuss briefly what it is that you just learned, and then you go on to the next 10 minutes. If you're in college where this has been done, uh, 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 you run into what I think is probably the general principle and might even apply eventually to elementary uh, uh, schools. It comes from the following well-established cognitive uh, 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 rule, and that is the human brain processes meaning before it processes detail. It processes the meaning of a piece of information before it processes the detail. It wants the meaning before it wants the detail. It's not interested in the number of vertical lines in a saber-toothed cat's mouth before it is interested in whether or not that mouth is going to clamp down on your thigh and have you for dinner. It wants the meaning of the mouth before it wants the detail of the mouth, and that makes sense. So you can ask the question, if we pay attention to meaning, if we want the meaning, what does meaning mean? Because that sounds pretty squishy. So in the book, I talk a little bit about the fact that it's been actually fairly well parsed out and is, the, I think, the greatest example of the following, that the human brain was never, uh, is not interested in learning. It's not. 
sad to say I've spent my whole life uh, teaching in some form or another, as well as researching, and you have too, but it's not interested in learning. It's interested in surviving. And what meaning means can be broken down into six questions that illustrate this principle of surviving actually pretty well. Question number one, when a piece of information comes into your head, the first question that the brain asks is, will it eat me? <laughs> threat. It's making a threat assessment. Will, is this, is this going gonna, gonna to hurt me? Question number two, also Darwinian, is because the brain is only 2% of your body weight, but man, it takes up 20% of your metabolizing energy. It's, a, it's an energy sink. The second question is, can I eat it? <laughs> Will it supply an energy resource to me? Questions number three and four actually show its Darwinian roots because the third thing it asks is, can I have sex with it? And the fourth is, will it have sex with me? And it's actually not interested in the uh, uh, act per se. It's actually interested in projecting its genes to the next generation. That's the whole reason why uh, biological tissues in one form or another in the, in the human body exist. It's interested in potential reproductive availability. Madison Avenue and ads have known about this for years, that you can actually get somebody's attention if you can make an appeal to reproductive availability. So questions number three and four address that. Questions number five and six, to me, are professionally the most interesting because there's no a priori for them. It just shows you how the brain uh, is built, how the brain lear learns things and what it pays attention to. Question number five is, have I seen it before? Question number six is, have I never seen it before? It turns out we are terrific pattern matchers. If we think we've seen something before, you know, our brain will just light up and lock down on it as if it looked, was looking at a saber-toothed cat. If it's never seen it before, it's the same thing. You know, what's, uh, what in my experience would be most like this? So what I tell you professors that are coming into our department who are now going to be teaching college, because Bill McKee that 10-minute in college, 10-minute rule for college students. At the 9-minute and 59-second mark, you have to stop what you're doing and address one of those six questions straight up. If you do address one of those questions straight up, the brain will be continually thinking, oh, this is the meaning of what it is that I'm hearing, and therefore pays attention to it. If you don't do that, then you will processively lose your audience, as that, uh, the most recent paper in Nature shows. I call them hooks, Hutsefa. The, uh, 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 um, and perhaps, do you mind if I give an example? Yes, please. The, uh, um, uh, because I teach the mental health sections, we're going to teach psychiatric disorders, I sometimes will start out, I, I, and because I'm the molecular guy or a molecular guy, I'm going to be talking about neurotransmitter a release and uptake in this recycling event that occurs, and uh, serotonin we talk about. I mean, there's a, a ton of, of molecular weeds that we'll get into, and sometimes these kids are hearing it for the very first time. So I never, even though I'm supposed to talk about mental health, I never start out with the details. Instead, I'll start out with the meaning of mental health. For example, there is a, 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 a person, I've sat on treatment committees occasionally for uh, 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 patients that have intractable disorders or, or interesting disorders, and I'll talk about a particular hallucination. One, one particular woman had a hallucination where she would be there for a period of time and then uh, the room would fade to black and she would be in front of train tracks. Uh, she had, was diagnosed with schizophrenia and she would, she would be just wildly agitated 
by this uh, hallucination that she didn't have uh, a lot of ability to get out of. It would, it would occur to her regularly. And so I would say to them, this, when you see people like this on the street, I am now going to tell you why they're behaving like they're behaving. And boom, then I got nine minutes and 59 seconds where I can talk about neurotransmitter reuptake. At the end, I'll, I'll almost always say, we actually don't really know how this uptake works and how this is going to relate to depression or, or, or anxiety or, in this particular case, schizophrenia, if it even does. Nonetheless, we are beginning to understand that, it, that all mental health disorders have molecular components as well as behavior components, which then leads into a, a wonderful discussion about nature and nurture, and pretty soon we've, we've uh, addressed the entire concept. So that's how it works in lecture, or how it can. And now this is, this is exactly relatable to math in the sense of, I think that's one of the biggest disconnects with mathematics and why students are not as overly engaged with it, is they're missing the why. They're missing the connection with the meaning and the application, which is insane because I, when kids ask me, like, like somebody asked me such an innocent question yesterday, but what, when was math discovered? Yeah. And it's so interesting because we think of it, I think students think about it as a thing versus just a way of trying yeah. to understand the world. It's which we've been doing in, in a sense. Sure. Animals c- c- make computations. Animals make computations about oh, how fast sure. to run, how hard to bite, et cetera, uh, yeah. maybe even beyond that. So it's, it's, it's funny because that disconnect, I think, is, is more prevalent in math than anything else. But it's, it's very okay. easily compatible, especially with all the amazing digital resources uh, that are out there today. Yeah. And, and by the way, I wanted to get your thoughts on digital resources that are really cropping up now and with, with this massive ed tech revolution that's happening because it's something that you talk about in your book of real, real importance, which is the importance of individualized learning. There's an entire section on how oh, yeah. minds, minds learn differently. What are your sure. thoughts on this movement of all these different types of video resources and educational resources with respect to the yeah. ongoing mission of individualized learning? Well, I'm generally enthusiastic about it by concept, and I'm not enthusiastic at all about it by implementation. <laughs> I guess that'd be the way to say it. So, so tell me more. Yeah, what, um, how could it be improved? Sure, sure. Well, one of the things, let's go back to the math for a second. I have often felt that math should never be taught outside of physics, ever. In fact, you should, uh, physics can give math meaning. Physics can give calculus meaning, as opposed to just giving the fundamental theory and hoping it somehow divines itself. The, uh, uh, in fact, I have a, a, um, an example from my own son's life. I actually taught, uh, uh, taught them some. We did some homeschooling for a period of time, and I taught some of the math. But uh, uh, I think Noah, in particular, was like, he's my youngest, was nine years old. Or, uh, and I started talking about uh, calculus. He didn't know anything about calculus, but I, he was crazy about history. And particularly in this particular case, uh, uh, Napoleon, or maybe it was the other son. The, uh, uh, but we talked about the Battle of, uh, Battle of Austerlitz and how Napoleon had been a, you know, a cannon guy, and he could calculate uh, how, how much, when the cannonball was going to come over a ridge and in, 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 in so doing blasted some of the Prussian army. And I, and I said to him, I said, son, would you like to know something? We can calculate the instantaneous velocity of that cannonball as it's arcing across the valley. It's going to blast the Prussians. Would you like to know how we calculate the instantaneous velocity? And Josh was going, oh, yeah, let's do that. Oh, my gosh. He was getting the meaning. And I said, well, son, that's called a first derivative function. So we 
talking all about how calculus works and then about the accelerations and we're going to get the second derivative. And pretty soon, he didn't have any idea about calculus, but he got so in it that both uh, uh, doing their own independent work. And here's the answer to your question about the individual electron. Uh, those software packages and those uh, uh, courses on the web that deeply appeal to the meaning of what they're saying first before the detail of it are going to win every time. And the reason why there has to be, in, to, I guess to answer the question further, a gigantic cornucopia of meanings to get to just a few concepts, not every kid is going to love the Battle of Austerlitz, okay? They might love something else. They might want to just know how airplanes fly. But if you have continually the meaning of a particular concept before you get into the detail, and you know the kid's interest in the meaning of uh, what the kid is naturally interested in, you go and then select the that has that meaning in it, followed by the conceptual detail that you need to get across, then you have the future of education, in my view. In the book, I talk about the fact that every brain is wired differently from every other brain and learns in ways unique to that wiring. So ultimately, the ultimate class size is probably one-on-one tutoring where the teacher really so knows the interests of the kid and keys off on it that uh, learning may occur. I actually have an example of that in my own life with my own mom, who was a fourth grade teacher. Do you mind if I talk about that please, for a second? Please, please do. The, uh, um, uh, she essentially homeschooled me. I'm a brat, as I, as I mentioned, uh, so we were moving around all the time. But she was a fourth grade teacher. Um, this is what she did at Zephyr, uh, in my growing up years. She said she would wait for it, like I would get interested in, and I think I talk about this in the book, I would get interested in dinosaurs. And she saw that I started to get interested in dinosaurs. And that woman got a bunch of manipulatives and posters and all kinds of things, and pretty soon the whole house was filled with dinosaurs. I mean, we would go into the kitchen and she would make what dinosaurs might have eaten. You know, she did that really strange sound where you put your arm against your armpit and make kind of a, I guess it would sound like a flatulent whatever. But mom was looking at it to say, you know, this is how a, a, a dinosaur might have sounded when talking about a hollow cranial vault. Dinosaurs, dinosaurs, dinosaurs. And so I just would do dinosaurs and I'd get out books and I loved it. And then she would notice that my interest would wane. And then I would not be interested in dinosaurs anymore, but I was interested in, say, something else, say, like the uh, maybe space. You know, in fact, I think there was a space unit. And so down would come the dinosaurs, and up would come the space stuff. So there would be the Gemini capsules and eventually Apollo and, and uh, related to rocket fuel, and, and here comes the math now because we're going to figure out how to, how to send somebody to the moon, all that kind of stuff. And so for a couple of months, it would just be uh, uh, space. I got it in being raised under that extraordinary woman's uh, household, my mom, that my curiosity was fundamentally the most important thing to her in my learning. And I have never been able to escape it. My curiosity, the curiosity, your student's curiosity is the single most valuable thing they have. And if you can utilize it to find out what they are and start creating rooms for them where they can go about and learn on their own, I was learning all kinds of things, Zefa, and I wasn't even trying to. I would call that uh, far transfer learning. I wasn't trying to pick up any information, but if I really wanted to know how to get to the moon, you know, I'm going to have to look F equals MA, so all of a sudden there's physics flying around my household. 
that kind of thing. That, to me, is the ideal. If you can create that electronically, all the better. I could argue that certain VR environments might lend itself naturally to my mother's instincts, something that would allow uh, a passive transfer of learning simply because you are ecologically within the concept will allow the best learning that exists. So I think that is... That's an opinion. That's not... But I, I, well, I wholeheartedly agree with that opinion. And I think if you look at everything else that <clears throat> is covered in the book, the fact of the, the way that minds learn differently, the, the fact that you talk about, and we didn't even touch on this because there's so much to unpack, uh, the importance of emotions. And, and man, I've just, uh, I, I just read another book by um, Peter Guber about storytelling and the, and the power of emotions there. I mean, when you think about all of these sure. different elements together, they, they tell that story of the importance yeah. of, I mean, curiosity is at the heart of emotions in terms of really being driven to learn something. So I think that's such a strong sentiment that that we can um, conclude with, and I just want to say one more thing about the <clears throat> what I think is so amazing about the edtech revolution in particular. And I know it's got a long way to go and a lot of refining that needs uh-huh. to be done. But to echo those sentiments sure. of saying that the ideal class size is one, I agree because. I actually yeah. do a lot. Uh, I do more one-on-one tutoring than I do classroom tutoring. Uh, classroom teaching tutoring has been a sole. Uh, core part of my life and my work for the last five years. And yeah. I, and I've seen how effective it is because you can have those customizations, but right now, right. Sure. Or even eventually that may not be a, able to be disseminated to everybody, but I think digitally yeah. one day it will be. And that's the beauty of it is that you have this wide array, hopefully a better and stronger content to choose from. And you can then pick and yeah. choose your teachers that you vibe and connect with. Cause it's also, it's about curiosity. And I also agree too that emotional connection, that emotional bond with who you're learning from is super yeah. important. So, yeah, yeah. Oh, the, I think I think learning is a relational proposition. I don't think it's a cognitive. Let, let's, uh, if let, you feel safe with a teacher, you'll learn a lot. Let's if you t- don't feel safe, you won't learn anything. Let's actually. I was I was going to wrap up, but let's let's talk about that last part because that's actually really important. If we can expand on that okay. a little bit, tell us about the importance of having that emotional bond with the teacher and the detriments of not having it or not feeling safe when you're in an environment with a teacher that you maybe don't feel yeah. comfortable with. Can we? Let's talk about that. Sure. The brain is interested in safety interested in learning, as we discussed. It's interested in surviving, and safety is part of survival. When you have, when you're constantly giving out cues that you're safe, then the brain can relax and can learn all of those amazing, extraordinary things it's so fully capable of learning. But if it feels threatened, if it feels stressed, if it feels not safe, it collapses into something we actually have a name for. We call it weapons focus. (laughs) No kidding. This was first done Uh, people that were interested in law enforcement and how the brain reacts to threatening situations. Uh, There's an amnesia that's usually associated with trauma, that's for sure, both an anterograde and retrograde, so on either side of the traumatic event, except if there's a weapon involved. If there's a weapon involved, the brain will, will focus on it powerfully and will know everything about the weapon. So even though when you're interviewing with a detective, your brain may not remember the color shirt that the perpetrator wore or, uh, uh, or exactly what he was doing uh, 10 minutes before he saw you, you will remember everything about the threat. We call it weapons focus. When a teacher yells at a student, when a teacher makes a student feel unsafe, they are essentially weaponizing their teaching. And when that happens, the kid quits learning longer learning. What they are is focusing on the weapon. 
And if the mouth is the form of the weapon and yelling, something that's actually been measured in the laboratory, you can destroy short-term memory consolidation, something we call working memory, the ability of working memory to do things for about 120 minutes. So I usually, this is actually true with adults. If you really want to make an adult dysfunctional, yell at them and then just wait two hours because they're going to be a mess for two hours as you recover from your verbal assault. Why? Because the brain interested in learning, the brain is interested in safety. And I can't stress more highly how delicate curiosity is and how wonderful innovation and how it thrives beautifully when it feels safe and how it doesn't thrive at all if somebody's an ass. Well, that is, uh, yes, I, that is so great to, to hear that from you in terms of, I, I hope other people out there are listening and taking heed of this final message, but all the messages taken in total, look, this was an amazing interview and best interview. I, I, I can say one of the best interviews I've had on the show. And Oh, you're very I, ho- I hope Thank that you. I hope that everybody pays attention and listens to what was said here. Also, of course, read read Brain Rules and these and the other books by uh, Dr. John Medina. But hopefully, you can unpack all of this stuff, rewind it, think about it over and over. Uh, I know I will. I will be rewinding and thinking about how to implement and integrate everything uh, in our conversation. So, thank you uh, so much for coming on and talking about this with me. If people want to. Uh, learn more about you or your books and maybe even uh, send you a message or whatever it is. How can they do that? Where do they go? What's, what's the website? Sure. Go to brainrules.net. And that has, and not only uh, is, there, is there communication through that website, it also has a ton of references. In fact, every chapter has got all, some, all the references. You can see the peer-reviewed components too. Because when I talk about my skepticism, it's important that they where that comes from. And when, they talk, when I talk about my enthusiasms, where that comes from as well. All right. So, guys, if you're listening, make sure to check that out. Now, if you didn't get a chance to write that down, well, it's a podcast, so you can just rewind. But if you don't want to rewind, go to <laughs> scalarlearning.com in the podcast section. You can check out the show notes. All the relevant information and notes will be there. And make sure to check back at Scalar Learning every Monday for new podcast episodes. That's when we drop them. And last but not least, make sure to check us out on YouTube. We're doing an entire special every uh, every time the SAT comes up. We're going to be doing an entire study session for the SAT math section. Got a new music math music video coming out shortly on logarithms, which I'm really excited about. Got a bunch more stuff planned for the YouTube channel as well this year. Lots of great, lots of great stuff, lots of great content that's coming out. So just go to YouTube and search for Scalar Learning. All right, thank you guys so much for joining. I'll see you all next time. Take it easy. Yeah.